Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 9 of Becoming. I'm your host, Katherine Tang, and for this episode, I spent some time getting to know Deborah Lefebvre. Deborah is now a nurse, a mother, a mental health advocate, and a philanthropist, but her early years were no cakewalk. In our conversation, she talks about surrounding herself with the right people, as well as her lifelong passion for serving the vulnerable. I hope you enjoy this chat with Deb. All right, so Deborah, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Catherine. I'm really happy to be here. Uh, so to get started, could you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure, of course. Thanks very much. Um, well, I guess my largest role is uh, I'm a mother of four young adults. Our, our eldest is 24 and our youngest is 18. We have three daughters and a son. And I've been married for 27 years to my husband, Paul. I'm a registered nurse and I hold a master's degree and I've continued on with my studies uh, for the last several years. Um, I also volunteer a great deal of my time uh, to various meaningful and worthy causes, particularly here in Kingston. And insofar as uh, what I've done, I think for the most part, Catherine, my life, my career has been focused working with vulnerable populations. I was the lead negotiator for First Nations and people um, in the improvement and takeover of their um, health programs and their funding from the federal government. And back in the 90s, uh, this occurred, uh, began in the early 90s. It was known as health transfer at that time. And then I um, that moved me into developing and leading an international health program in maternal child health in Africa. And then from there to senior leadership in a community health center here in Kingston, and uh, from which I resigned uh, entirely from healthcare administration oh, about five years ago uh, with a decision to return to direct patient care and education. And actually, I think that's where we first met was when mm-hmm. you were um, the director at, at KCHC. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you know, lots of focus here on on health. Um, this podcast is called Becoming. So I like to rewind and really start at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, what were you like when you were younger? Mm-hmm. Um, when I was younger, well, uh, I guess I should back up a little bit. I grew up in a very, ooh, very challenging and stressful environment. And I was exposed to various adverse uh, childhood experiences. And so I think as a result of that, I, on reflection, I think I, oh, I locked lacked a lot of self-esteem. I had very little confidence and I certainly didn't have a voice. So, and I guess overall I was quite meek and um, I missed school often and, you know, failed at many, many things right through until I started, I guess, in grade eight or grade nine. Um, And I think that was largely because I was hungry a lot and I suffered Mm -hmm. from chronic lack of sleep. Um, but along the lines, I, I don't know how I mustered it, but I was quite athletic and I was rather musical. I sang and I played guitar, but because my family didn't have the means like for me to either pursue it or any one of those interests, I, I quickly, they quickly fell to the wayside. So, and then growing up, I got mixed up with the wrong crowd and I think it was sometime in maybe grade eight, 
uh, perhaps grade, I think it was grade eight, where um, Mrs. Reichmus, who is our guidance counselor, and my vice principal, uh, Mr. Didkowski, who's since passed away, they, they kind of believed in me. And then they were the first ones to help me get on track. Do you think that maybe has something to do with why you're you know, a lot of your career has been focused on vulnerable, vulnerable populations. Without a doubt, Catherine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I, when I think to that spark, I, I think it largely has to do with my own personal experiences as a child. And so from being someone who, you know, had a lot of challenging um, circumstances, you didn't have a lot of self-esteem. Mm-hmm. Um, what sort of aspirations did you have? Like, what were you, what did you think your future would hold? I didn't have many at that point. I have to say, you know, I'd, um, I've been thinking about this and they were very narrow and they were very limited. Like I honestly didn't see past the life I was born into because I didn't have many role models in my early life that, you know, would challenge me or help me get past what, what I was experiencing. And uh, so I really was resigned to not attending university. And, and my goal really, Catherine, was just simply to graduate from high school. And, and I mm-hmm. did well in high school. And uh, I, I can remember where my world opened up a little bit. Um, teachers believed in me and they would come in early to help me study, you know, to achieve that A in bio, to get all the double O credits that I needed in the event that I chose to attend university because they certainly wanted me to. And and then I I don't know how it happened, but I aligned myself with good people. You know, like um, kids that were uh, very, they had aspirations and they came from really good families. And so I, I think that those associations and, and the fact that teachers believed in me really helped me to to realize, I think, that, yeah, I, I could possibly do more, even though I didn't have the means or the support uh, to do so. So from high school, what did you what did you do after that? Well, I I worked for a bit, uh, just part time, and uh, then I chose to. I wanted to become a doctor. It was during high school, Catherine, where I attended the School of Dentistry at the University of Manitoba. I had had a um, an oral injury, and it was there that I don't know. I was exposed to healthcare and a very helping profession. And so I decided I wanted to become a doctor and I had all the university credits to do so, but becoming a physician, it was a long road. It still is today. So I thought I would go into nursing, uh, which at that time was a two and four year program. And I uh, thought I'd put myself through med school while I work nights or on weekends as a nurse. So I applied uh, to nursing and I was accepted and uh, that was in 19, graduation, 87, I believe it was. And I attended nursing school and quickly realized that nursing was it for me. I was elected as uh, president and I blossomed as a nurse and a nursing student. And I just remained in the profession. Medicine was no longer something that I wished to pursue. And so I'm curious to hear, what did your family think about your, your aspirations around nursing? Um, 
I think my mom was really quite proud of me. Mm. Uh, I was the first in in my family and even um, extended family to go to post secondary. So that was very exciting um, for yeah. for my mom and and I and I like to think for my brothers and sisters as well. Mind you, um, of the six of us, only one then attended post secondary. But she was my youngest sister, and and I think that I was a bit of an inspiration for her. Actually, she's told me that I was. <laughs> yeah. And are you the oldest of six? Yes. Where are you in this? Yes, I yeah. am. Yeah. So you're sort of charting a course there for. <laughs> well, I didn't realize it at the time, and and that's a very heavy thing to say, but yeah, I suppose I, I suppose that I did, and um, yeah, it was early on in my career, and I was working on my master's program that I uh, I was approached by my director of nursing. Her name was uh, is Ruth Wintemute. Um, I was doing some research in my master's program on sexual harassment of the nurse professional. So you have to appreciate the time that I'm speaking mm-hmm. about, which was in the early 90s at this point in time. And, and there hadn't been much research done um, in this field, in this particular field. And so after jumping through many ethical hoops, not only with the university, but also with the hospital, I received approval to do so. And I'll never forget Mrs. Wintermute after, you know, the data was collected, it was an ad on, it was analyzed and I created the report. And of course I shared it with her and she asked me to stand in front of the board and the entire hospital staff to report the findings after my association asked, had asked me if they could publish it. And I remember standing there, Catherine, and my knees were shaking. Uh, I was young and there was the board and the hospital CEO and we had a real problem. We had a real problem at, at the facility, and the CEO had asked me a, a question that I knew he was not going to like the answer to, and I looked over to Mrs. Wintermute, and she just gave me the nod, so I just went off, and I told them all about the report and the problem that we had, and it was shortly after that that she offered me a position in middle management, and I didn't look back since that time. I've always remained in, in healthcare administration. How long had you been um, practicing as a nurse at that point? Um, that would maybe five years. Not so long. still fairly early in your career. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. it was. It was quite, actually, it was probably more like four years. And yeah. so you were doing your master's at the same time after? I was, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I moved right into the master's program. Um, I can recall working nights as a staff nurse as a, in, in the float pool, largely in emergency and mm-hmm. ICU, and then going to university in the morning to attend classes. Wow. Yeah, it was a hard go, but, uh, but it was, it's definitely been worth it. And then so from, from there, um, is that when you moved into the uh, lead negotiator position? That's right. Yes, because uh, while while working um, part time at Misericordia Hospital and going to school, I applied to Health Canada um, to work as a community health nor- a nurse in the north in northern Manitoba on reserve. And it was there that I realized the plight of our First Nations brothers and sisters, and I was deeply motivated to make a difference, uh, so much so that I invited the Premier of Manitoba uh, to Oxford House First Nation 
And uh, I also spoke with one of my profs, and she was largely the one who spearheaded the visit. And uh, things started to change. And it was after that, and with the birth of our first child, um, that I decided I wanted to work with First Nations people uh, more fully and completely and uh, launch my own company and began negotiations for them. So we work with many First Nations communities, and we also had a planning division. I hired a couple of planners. So we looked at everything from design and builds of new nursing stations to um, school development, uh, to airports, uh, to dialysis. Yeah, it was quite exciting. Mm-hmm. So it was really very a holistic approach to, to serving this community. Yeah, that community and a, and, and a few others. You know, I, I look back um, in anticipation of, of our discussion today, and I look back at that I developed in 1996, my little uh, marketing publication, if you will. And some Mm -hmm. of the words that we use today, they're very much there uh, back then. So yes, it was very holistic, um, very community-minded, very much community-driven, and uh, very much in the spirit of partnership. It had to be in order to make a difference. So how did you decide even that you wanted to start your own company that you wanted to consult? I was asked to lead a, um, a health planning initiative uh, with various First Nations groups in the city of Winnipeg. I just realized I could do more um, on my own. And and yes, so by way of what I affectionately call the moccasin telegram, uh, I was very busy, um, involved in, in many, many improvements um, that were community-led and community-driven. I just happened to be situated in Winnipeg where many of the contacts were and was able to offer some guidance um, in that regard and, and, uh, of course, led the negotiations with with them alongside me um, in the takeover of their programming from the federal government. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and then we moved to Kingston, Catherine, Um, my husband graduated, uh, he was in dental school at the time and, uh, we moved to Kingston. He's a Kingstonian. So I left my business to my business partner Mm -hmm. and had decided to stay home with our four young children. And roughly when was that? That was in the year 2000. And then a couple years later, I was invited to travel to Africa. Um, and that's what led me to, again, being a bit of a voice for vulnerable people. Yes. Mm-hmm. So you were asked to to travel to Africa. And what was that experience like? What did you take back from it? It was life changing. Yeah. You know, I, I'd witnessed poverty and despair in Canada, uh, had written a paper with my husband uh, that was called um, Canada's third world, uh, take a look in your own backyard. Um, Mm -hmm. So it was a very long paper on the plight of our First Nations people. And, uh, and I thought I had seen it all until I traveled to Africa, traveling to Africa, uh, working in what they called a health clinic that was a shanty of a building with no running water. Um, We would use uh, microscopes that my daughter had at nine years old. Uh, to mm-hmm. diagnose the malarial 
C-celled, C-shaped parasite, you know, by daylight only. And um, working alongside Nurse Mary. And it changed me, uh, Catherine. And I remember looking up at a poster in this clinic as many, many people lined up to be seen because um, that's what they did. And they heard a Canadian nurse happened to be there. Um, And I looked up at a poster, Catherine, and there was a child laying underneath a bed net in this poster. And I remember looking to Mary and because I hadn't heard anything about bed nets. And um, I had one around my bed in this, you know, very um, well-appointed hotel that we were staying in. Mm -hmm. Um, But I didn't understand the significance of it, nor the significance of malaria and the fact that it was carried by an infected Anopheles female mosquito. And Mary explained to me the importance of the bed net. And uh, I just thought, I can do something about this. So the NGO that I was traveling with, I remember many nights speaking with the uh, CEO of the, of the NGO, Children's Hunger Fund, pleading with them to set up a health division and that I would negotiate with them and I would lead um, and help navigate But in the end, it wasn't within their mission and their mandate. Uh, So then I was left with this, what I thought to be a bombshell. And I I thought it to be a very life-saving, cost-effective way in which to, you know, save kids and and Mm -hmm. pregnant women. And um, so I contacted uh, the Canadian Red Cross. I did not receive any calls back. And so I decided to go it on my own and I networked with my own association. I networked with uh, um, Mr. Milliken, uh, who was the speaker of our house uh, at the time. I networked with our city of Kingston government. I networked with anyone who was in any position of influence to help me get this off, off the ground. And I met amazing people along the way. And it was, again, a community-driven initiative, um, and we spearheaded, we launched Bionet, and we ran it for many years, and we raised millions of dollars, and we saved, we provided many bed nets. We networked with, um, oh gosh, um, Healthy Child Uganda, which was spearheaded by Dr. Jen Brenner, uh, a pediatrician out of the University of Calgary. So basically what it was, it was a Canadian collaborative. It was a Canadian partnership amongst Canadian organizations, like-minded, and we partnered with Ugandan organizations and we um, built upon their models of village health teams and we trained individuals on the ground who were largely women. And that's how we had demonstrated success. And we received federal funding as well. And I'm seeing these themes of you sort of by happenstance or or circumstance, I guess, coming into Mm -hmm. these um, new communities and then seeing a need and then just feeling compelled to to meet those needs. How did you end up becoming involved with with mental health then from there? Mental health has always been... uh, a stream or a theme through my work, Catherine. Um, Mental health and physical health are so intricately connected. 
um, whether it's in, you know, a hospital setting in an urban facility, whether it's in Canada's North on reserve, uh, the level of suicide and depression. Um, I had attended suicides. I got the gravity of it, or whether it's in Africa or in Kingston North End working at KCHC. And for me, the real catalyst was in my role as a, as a nurse. I, may, I mentioned I went back to patient care about five years ago, and a young woman was admitted to my unit. And the doc and I tried to navigate. She was in a full-blown psychotic state. Um, but she presented to us because she had a, a medical condition. And he and I tried to navigate the system. Um, and I felt rather helpless, and I know he did too, particularly when our psych unit refused to admit her. And I needed to know more, Catherine, so I contacted the health commission. And looking back now, I think I was suffering with some type of uh, PTSD or some type of uh, trauma, Um, and so I was encouraged because of my passion and my need And I had already been taking courses in mental health uh, online. And um, so, yeah, um, I'm now a mental health educator and uh, working alongside my colleagues and uh, applying what I know um, to empower people within our community. Because oftentimes, people who are dealing with a mental health challenge need someone to understand them, need someone to show empathy, and need someone to know where to go to get help, to help prevent it developing into a full-blown crisis. And I think even as as an educator, that's something that I've been seeing more and more. It's a prevalence of, um, of mental health um, struggles and I think it's something that's really important for us to to be aware of and to, to know how to, to deal with and to help others um, work through as well. Well, it, it's so true, Catherine, as an educator, you spend probably the largest amount of time mm-hmm. with young people, right, within the school community, because I, I, I know as, as a mother, I get my kids, you know, I get them up and they're off to school for eight hours and sometime longer if they're involved in extracurricular activities, they come home, they, you know, we have dinner and they go to bed, basically. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's, a, it's a growing um, uh, need area. Uh, there is heightened awareness and it just, it just inspires me so much when I hear, you know, people taking an interest in mental health and and mental health first aid for that matter and and becoming part of that movement in reducing the stigma and increasing the awareness. Yeah. And so I guess coming full circle, you had shared how you started off as a nurse and then went on this, you know, journey to northern Manitoba, to Africa, um, you know, here in Kingston. um, And now you're you're a nurse um, yes. in Brockville. Yes. Uh, what does what does your day to day look like? My day to day nursing life. Uh, I never know what I'm going to get. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, and working primarily in med surge, 
Uh, it's it's what is that medicine oh sorry medicine so um, dealing with our our aging population Uh, so working in medicine largely in cardiac related issues uh, diabetes uh, induced health issues um, working with the elderly and of course associated with that are many uh, mental health challenges or uh, dementia and delirium. Many of my patients uh, are um, elderly and are from long-term care facilities. And that's really the face of healthcare in medicine right now. Um, I get excited when I have a young person who might be, you know, 40-ish, because we know that we can heal and the large majority of the younger population go home to their productive and hopefully meaningful lives, whatever that might mean for an individual. And then the elderly looking at knee replacements and hip replacements. So that's largely the the demographic, the profile that we're dealing with in Brockville. And I think that can be said in, in other community hospitals. Um, Brockville for me, Catherine, is fairly close. I live in the east end of Kingston. And coming from Kingston Community Health Centers, I like that community feel that it has. Mm. And um, Brockville, we've been very, um, very successful, uh, very fortunate to have uh, some senior leaders from very um, well-known uh, tertiary care facilities that have come in um, because they're searching for perhaps um, more of a challenge and getting uh, lending some of their expertise um, to this community hospital that is growing. We are in the midst of expansion and it's a rather exciting time uh, for Brockville within the Southeast land. Mm-hmm. And so on top of all of this, on top of being a mother and of being a nurse and, <laughs> you know, all of the other things that you're doing, you also are a very active volunteer. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are some of the things that you've been involved with and why does it matter so much to you to, to give back? Hmm. That's a really good question. Um, you know, when I, I, I think for me, the importance of volunteering likely stems from my childhood. When I think mm-hmm. back to those very influential people in my life who helped um, help shape who I am today. Some of those were volunteers, uh, the YMCA um, uh, in Winnipeg. It was the YMCA when I would, you know, find refuge at the Y growing up. It was volunteers. It was a young woman. She was probably 20-ish, 21 I belong to the girls club and she was so invested in me. And I think she saw through my eyes what I was going through. And so she would have me over to her house and, you know, the group of us and, and just, she was marvelous and she made a huge difference in my life. And I was probably in grade five, grade six at the time. And then throughout my life, early on, um, uh, I was in my late teens, I started to give back through the association, Manitoba Association for Children with Learning Disabilities. Ian was my first pupil, and he was in grade six in an, um, a, 
very impoverished neighborhood. And uh, I would spend my evenings and early mornings with him at the association and helping him overcome his disabilities with language and reading. And, uh, and then throughout my life moving forward, um, yeah, volunteering has been a very large part of it, Catherine. And, and to this day, uh, I volunteer with the United Way. I sit on their leadership cabinet. Uh, I'm on the committee with, well, formerly Fair for Friends, but we're looking to uh, shape something new uh, for the United Way. And Fair for Friends just wrapped up its 25th year anniversary last year. And I also volunteer with Hospice Kingston. Um, I'm a, I'm a, I was faced with uh, medical assistance in dying as a nurse recently, a few years back, when my association hadn't yet even developed guidelines as to, they were in the process of, Catherine, of developing guidelines for me as a nurse and what can I do and what can I not do uh, mm-hmm. in assisting uh, someone to die and or in that process rather. And uh, so I, I was stuck with an ethical dilemma and then wound up on the side of patient advocacy and, and the patient's right to choose and have spoken many times about the role of uh, the nurse professional in, in assisting in that process, um, following the guidelines of my professional association, the College of Nurses, um, and um, working with Hospice Kingston, uh, knowing the importance of um, helping someone in palliative care, and palliative care not necessarily meaning uh, someone is on death's door, but meaning, you know, helping someone live as well as they can, um, pain-free, if you will. And so Hospice Kingston, we're now in the midst of a new build, and I'm assisting with the development of the model of care in that new build um, and uh, developing guidelines. And I've been doing that for a few years now. Just by invitation, I, I think um, Kingston's a small community, isn't it, Catherine? It is. It is. <laughs> and, and so it, it doesn't, you know, my, uh, your reputation, my others' reputations, they tend to precede us. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think, yeah, it's always by invitation uh, that, uh, that I become involved. And, um, yeah, and, and the United Way, Catherine, and working with youth, uh, One Roof, um, working with youth homelessness. I'm involved in that in a, in a volunteer capacity. And of course, working with mental health and, and my ongoing, ongoing pursuit of study and, and just continuing education. I know the challenge that mental health faced is faced with by youth and, and homelessness. And, and so I just have a sincere passion and just want to help. Really, that's what drives me. It's just wanting to help. And one of my own kids um, has been faced with their own um, challenges of identity and fitting in and bullying and all that goes with, you know, the challenges of growing up in, in some cases. And so, yeah, my passion is also personal, too. Yeah. And I think even in our conversation, I can hear the just the sincerity and the compassion that you have for people. And um, it's really, 
it's really amazing to see to see that and to hear it. And I think the different experiences that that you've had really kind of come together in a a really unique package, right? Okay. Which is yeah, which is why I think you know. The invitations, I'm sure, will continue to come for you <laughs> just to be involved in lots of different things. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So looking back on your 27, many years of experience, <laughs> so I was like that. 27 was like um, your many years of experience. If you could share one piece of advice or a life lesson, what would it be? I have so many, but you know, the one piece I would say to people is to follow your instinct and your intellect. And I say that because for me, that's, that's where I've been. And that's what I rely on today. So my instinct, it, it largely comes from life experiences. And, and when you combine that with intellect, so basically, stay in school, Read, 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 listen to podcasts, allow yourself to just absorb, you know, the wisdom that's out there and, and gain that instinct through and with intellect. Um, I don't think anyone can ever go wrong. So you've got the power of the brain and the passion of the heart. I think together, anything is possible. Having come from such an um, such a difficult circumstance, how did how did you find it within yourself to to keep persevering and to and to care and to try? Because I looked outward, and I saw people that were like me, but then there were people that were so unlike me that had it e- even a more difficult challenge. Mm than I did. And we're all one on this earth. And we need to realize that no matter where we come from, we can be different. And we can come together and support each other. And I got that support. And like I said, you know, I think people that I met along the way were there for a reason. People looked into the window of my soul who didn't really know me at all. But I think I was easy to read. And mm-hmm. as I met people in my life and, you know, through nursing and held babies, you know, children who were lost, and then I looked into their eyes and I saw some of their challenges. And the fact that I could be there for them changed me. It inspired me and it motivated me. And it does to this day. Because as I said, you know, I, I, I was humbled. I've been humbled throughout my life with various awards and distinctions. And every time I feel such humility because that, those things that have come to me are not because of me, it's because of everyone around me. And they empowered me and they believed in me. And every child has a light. And I said that when I was interviewed for the Peace Award. I believe every child has a light and it just needs the switch to be 
turned on. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened to me. You know, I, I, I had many people that looked through the window of my soul and they believed in me. And, and even into my 20s, Catherine, it, my path was never straight. It was never straight. I strayed. And we all do. But it's how we get back on track is what the difference maker is. And I think that's a message even for me as a teacher to remind me to to remember that each of the students that I work with have, has that light and it's trying to help them to see it themselves as well. Yeah. So I guess last thing, um, how can people connect with you? Well, um, I am on Facebook and I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter and I, I have, you know, my kids encourage me to get on Instagram, but I just don't <laughs> know how I can manage that, honestly. Um, yeah, I, I find LinkedIn, it's, it's just my name. I think it's, I think it's Deb Lefave or Deborah Lefave, and similarly on Facebook and, uh, and Twitter. And with mental health, I, I think it's um, mental health, uh, the name of my little um organization is a limestone city mental health uh, first aid i think limestone city mental health first aid and i continue on with my long time um, organization that i struck way back in the mid 90s and it's simply lefave and associates so i do some fun work uh, under lefave and associates but on a on a on a greater scale with uh, bigger corporations um but yeah at the community level, it's it's really just Deb Lefebvre. All right. So All I'll right. make sure to put that in the notes. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Catherine. And thanks again for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. And this is so awesome you're doing this. Thank you, Catherine. So that's it for my conversation with Deborah. Next week is episode 10, which is the last episode of season one. And I'm really excited to introduce you to someone who has played a really big role in my life. You can catch the episode next Monday. 